and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and DispatchMedia.com. Go to thedispatch.com for all the free stuff to sign up to become a member of our, our glorious community and to find out whatever happened to the lost shaker of salt. Today's episode of The Remnant is brought to you by Hydrant. More about them in a little bit. Okay, so um, we are once again going back to the well from some of our greatest hits guests and this guest is, is such a bon vivant. He's a, he has an effervescent personality, uh, always um, ebullient and effulgent in his optimism and his love of life. And, uh, and just really just, you know, I think at least two orifices he, sing, he whistles zippity-doo-dah out of, which is not a reference to... Song of the South or any sort of cancel culture things. Um, we have none other than uh, Kevin Williamson. Kevin, welcome back to The Remnant. Hey, Jonah. How are you doing? As if you ever really left The Remnant. So, so it's the Hotel California. You know, you just check out, but you you never leave. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, uh, so let me start with something weird that I've been... Th- I just sort of been thinking about for the last day or so. I... Um, Took the family, or the family took me, I don't know what the right location is, uh, to a drive-in movie in hmm. Stevens City, Virginia. We drove an hour and a half to go see a movie I've seen 30 times, uh, Jaws. Um, and, uh, and I hadn't been to a drive-in. I mean, you're originally from Texas. You probably have much more experience with drive-ins than I do. But, like, I haven't been to a drive-in in 40 years, something like that, 45 years, since I was a little, little kid. It was fun. It was great. We didn't plan it well. We should have brought more picnic-y type stuff and all the rest, but it was a lot of fun. Anyway, I saw Jaws, and the thing that amazed it, like, I didn't think you could rewatch that movie and find anything new to say about it at this point, um, at least how many times I've seen it. You're familiar with the film? I, take I it? am. It's always hard for me to uh, get past the fact that the crusty old sea captain is King Henry VIII. From, uh... <laughs> yeah, that's 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 an issue for me, too. Um but uh, it was actually really interesting, the beginning of it, as a sort of parable of the pandemic. Hmm. Because the mayor of the town is presented with evidence that the shark threat is real. <laughs> Many times. <laughs> and he keeps Dramatic. saying, yeah, and, 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 and he's very Trumpy in the, I mean, I forget Trumpy. He's just very sort of anti-shark precaution. And he... Um, you know, when they announced they're going to close the beaches and there's this backlash from all the businesses, he, uh, the mayor chimes in and says, only for 24 hours, only for 24 hours. And the, and Sheriff Brody is, Chief Brody's like, I didn't agree to that. I didn't agree to that. And, um, and he has to be dragged kicking and screaming to actually deal with the reality of the shark and just the mood of the Amity business community and everybody else. It made me feel a little better about the stupidity of the current moment we're in because it turns out that that, that stupidity w- was utterly recognizable to Americans as an American thing in Jaws 45 years ago or whenever that thing came out. Um, 
And so with that, what do you think of that? And what do you think about how we're dealing with the pandemic as the, as the first wave respikes even before the second wave? Well, first of all, on the subject of drive-in, you're right. I did spend a lot of time uh, going to those as a, as a young guy. And uh, we still have drive-ins in uh, Lubbock. A friend of mine actually operates a, a drive-in theater there. But in fact, the first movie I ever went to see, my parents took me to see at a drive-in. And you know, you were talking about my bubbly personality. So the first movie I ever saw, I would have been about three years old, was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. <laughs> a feel-good movie, really. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, family, a family summer entertainment right there. And um, I think my parents took me because they thought I would just fall asleep, you know, in the back of the car. But I just, of course, sat there horrified through the whole thing. And um, I, I still think about it often, John. I do. But uh, <laughs> yeah, Jaws is um, does capture something. I think of that um, kind of American, you know, denialism about things. Like, um, you know, we'll just, we'll just muddle through and things will be all right. And I think that's part of our national character because we've done it so often and it's worked out so well for so long where we just kind of say, well, we'll just figure it out as we go. And as it turns out, in a lot of situations, that's the right thing to do. Um, you know, you and I have both written endlessly about this, that you know, trying to impose these so-called rational plans and rationalistic models on a, on a complex society is a good way to, uh, to make a mess and treating everything as um, though it were an emergency or uh, you know, the moral equivalent of war, as you've written a lot, is also a recipe for really bad policy. But then every now and then you do get an emergency that has to be responded to as such. And every now and then you do have to impose um, emergency measures or policies on a society that is not really much inclined to uh, accept them. You know, I, I, talk, I talk about this a lot, and maybe I should write something more serious and, and substantive on it at some point, but um, Americans are just crazy people. <laughs> you know, we, are, um, we are psychologically and culturally not very much like anyone else in the world. Uh, you know, we're not like any of our ancestry countries in, in Western Europe or the UK. We're not very much like the Canadians. Um, you know, we talk about our... Um, the gun control people like to talk about how many people get shot every year in this country. And it's true, it's an enormous number and it's enormously higher than most other places. But we also have just multiples of, of, of other countries when it comes to the rate of people who get beaten to death or stabbed or intentionally drowned or who die in accidents of various kinds. Um, we are the, the hold my beer people. And um, <laughs> that is really deeply imprinted in us. I think it's part of what makes us so innovative and dynamic, but it's also what makes it so violent and occasionally irresponsible. And it's really hard to govern people like that. And it's hard to get them to go along with things. You know, so I'm here in Texas where um, we make a cult of that kind of uh, ungovernability, um, although we're not really quite the, um, the independent frontier people we like to tell ourselves that we are. And uh, we, you know, enacted some reasonably responsible measures most places. And uh, like a lot of the big states, this was largely driven in Texas by county governments, which are not um, nearly so uniformly Republican or as conservative as people imagine Texas to be. You know, all the big cities in Texas are Democratic cities. They're all uh, lefty cities. Uh, in fact, now that Fort Worth is kind of voting Democratic from time to time, the uh, that was your holdout, right? That was the, the last <laughs> reliably Republican city in Texas now is my hometown, Lubbock which is, you know, 280,000 people or something like that. So not a real big city. 
So the response that you see in places like Dallas County or in uh, Harris County, where Houston is, are more like what you would see in the rest of the country from other comparable uh, big cities. It hasn't really been radically different. At the state level, you've got a different kind of attitude and a different kind of rhetoric. And uh, Governor Abbott, of course, was um, very eager to get stuff reopened, as as any you know politician would be, I think, in that um, nobody wants to cause a recession and then run in the middle of it. And that was part of our mistake about this from the beginning, is that we treated it at the very beginning, you know, for the first month or so when it was mainly overseas, as a potential economic problem, as uh, you know, a stock market problem, something that could spark a recession. And uh, most of our energy was put into responding to it in that way with you know, the paycheck uh, replacement programs and that stuff. And we didn't pay enough attention to it, I think, as, as principally a public health problem, because we thought we could dodge the economic consequences. But if you don't deal with the underlying health problems, you don't dodge the economic consequences either. So we started opening things up pretty quickly here in Texas, um, pretty quickly relapsed in some places, including Dallas. Um, Governor Abbott reversed um, some of his uh, efforts at normalization. For instance, they reclosed bars, which apparently were a a big place for uh, transmission. Who would have thought bars being a good place to spread diseases? That's never happened before. (laughs) Um, Because alcohol makes people make good decisions. And... um, so, yeah, we're we're back into kind of a weird limbo place here uh, in Texas where, you know, some stuff's open, some stuff's not. Um, there's no real sense of when the next point of making a decision is. And that's another thing I think we've done wrong in this, that um, we said, well, we're going to do X and then we're going to do X until we don't have to do X anymore. But we've never really given people um, very robust and credible schedules of like, you know, here's how we review. Here's what our criteria are going to be when we do it. And um so people feel like things are just sort of open-ended and undefined and unresolved. And I think there's less of a sense that there is some kind of uh, rigorous program being pursued, that there are, you know, kind of uh, levels and thresholds and, um, and definitions that are being worked with in a way that can be understood and communicated and predictable. So even people like me who follow politics in the news pretty closely, I think, um, have a sense that things are kind of being done on an ad hoc basis and and remain up in the air. So it's, it's, you could overstate this point and I will try not to, but um, I've always thought there was a weird kind public choicey kind of issue going on in that um, governors, particularly governors like Abbott would be inclined to, open up early. And I'm not, you know, my, my own view about whether he's right or wrong and all that kind of stuff is complicated because I think it was probably unnecessary for states like Texas to close down so completely in the beginning anyway, because they didn't have the kind of breakout that New York had. And mm-hmm. so you ended up pissing off a lot of people prematurely about lockdowns that were not really necessary. And now that they're more necessary, people are like, well, we've already done that. And we're not doing that again. Yeah. But um, but there's anyway, there's a there's a weird public choice kind of thing in that if you're the governor of Texas, um, it is probably pretty easy, comparatively easy for a business interest to get you on the phone or to get your people on the phone. But if you're, a, you know, a, a line worker somewhere, the conduit to get feedback to your political leaders 
is much more muted and has to go through like media or polls and that kind of thing. And anyway, I just thought it was always it was always interesting to me that despite all of the protests and all of the 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 carrying on at the beginning of the, you know in March and April, polls routinely showed that average Americans, black, white, just didn't think it was time to reopen the economy, didn't think it was time to lift the lockdowns. And yet to hear the debate, it was all, particularly on the right, you know, it was like, you know, the, you don't understand the common man needs to go back to work. He wants to go back to work. And then you'd have a poll and a lot of the common men were like, eh, you know, maybe we should wait a little while longer. Um, and you could just see how it's part of that may just be a disconnect in terms of the information loop that politicians are getting. If they're watching Fox News, they're listening to Rush or they're getting calls from donors um, who normally call them about getting traffic signals or curb cuts or whatever at their strip mall, um, you would get a different impression than you would get if you were just talk, doing man-on-the-street conversations kind of thing. You see what yeah, I'm saying? Uh, one, one caveat there is that um, certainly in a lot of Texas, um, in a lot of towns in Texas, the hospital systems and healthcare systems are the largest employer, or one of the largest employers. So they do get a lot of feedback that way well so they are a business interest of their own um i mean they're not anything like say the oil and gas industry in terms of their political clout but um you know a lot of places where there is an oil and gas they are along with the local education institutions particularly the state universities are they're really important political players because they're huge parts of the local economy and they're huge employers so um i think he's probably getting it from, from both sides on that but i suspect that you're right that a lot of this is driven by the um what we've come to call the entertainment wing of the conservative movement. So we had this dumb situation here in uh, Dallas where there's a lady who operates a hair salon, which of course is always the top list of my things to worry about in life's hair salons. <laughs> and um, she just refused to uh, comply with shutdown order. And uh, so eventually she was charged with contempt of court and um, I guess arrested. And it became a cause celeb on the kind of talk radio right. I believe our attorney general actually went down and posted bail for her and her out. And then the governor said, well, people won't be arrested for this sort of stuff in the future. So that kind of thing undermines their ability to not only execute, but really morally defend uh, a credible set of policies, I think. And um, I think that is, um, I mean, don't get me started on the whole subject of populism, but that really is the downside of this sort of thing where because crowds are fickle and people change their minds about things very quickly, um, doing what the people want at any given moment will give you always an incoherent policy because people change their minds about things because all policies impose costs. And once people figure that out, they don't like it and say they want the benefits without the costs, which is basically the model we've been working off of in Washington for the last 20 or 25 years. And um, it's difficult to pursue a... Um, a kind of unified and coherent and predictable line of policy. And sometimes, again, you really do need to do that in, in a public health emergency is, is one of those times. Yeah, so to change subject uh, quite a bit, um, obviously we're on the same page about populism, but one of my great frustrations in this moment is that, you know, I, you, I get all this strange new respect from, from liberals for mm. criticizing populism on the right, which I have been doing for 20 years. It's not like I discovered this topic with Donald Trump, but um, 
and they're like, oh, you know, they, they, they think it is such a valuable contribution to, you know, point out the dangers of listening to the mob and the crowd when they define the mob as a bunch of guys with gads and flags mm. and guns at a Michigan protest. And yet the second I criticize pandering to the mob when it's the Black Lives Matter protests and the cancel culture stuff, they're like, so you're you're aiding and embedding racism. Of and and, um, and sort of to make to, to sort of provide an example of the point you're making about when you make decisions based upon uh, what crowds want, um, you end up they almost in, they almost have to be by definition short term decisions, right? I mean, short term thinking behind them because you're just trying to get trying to placate the mob right now. And so I have a piece up at the dispatch today about this. I don't know if you saw this. The NBA is going to is considering allowing social justice slogans in lieu of last names on NBA players' jerseys. Mm-hmm. And as a political solution to an immediate problem, it's not an incredibly it's not that dumb an idea because it gives players who are under a lot of pressure not to participate in the NBA um, to show solidarity and all this kind of stuff. It gives them a way, sort of an out you know, and sort of cover. I get that. But it was only, what, like three months ago, six months ago? I can't even remember. Time, time's a flat circle now. Um, where What's-His-Face, the general manager of the Rockets, said, you know, supported the Hong Kong protesters. Yeah. And, and the NBA, you know, wet its bed in... in and I, I think this is actually a fair non... This is not a kung flu thing. This is a fair use of the term. They had to kowtow yeah. to, to China over all of it and apologizing. You had LeBron James saying how, you know, you understand things. It was complicated and that the situation with China is very complex. And if you're not informed, it's very easy to reach conclusion. And, and the thing is, China has a Jim Crow system. China is right now trying to sterilize Uyghurs. Um, that's a story in the last 24 hours. They got a million Uyghurs in concentration camps. They uh, discriminate against non-Han Chinese in a system of that is truly systematically racist, not metaphorically systematically racist. Um, and yet I have a hard time believing that you're going to see dudes in the NBA wearing Uyghur Lives Matter jerseys, right? And so there's that. The Plus, the justice stuff will last until Jersey starts saying, you know, choose life or uh, marriages between a man and a woman. Exactly. Or, or, you know, uh, uh, the South will rise again. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but no, um, uh, so there's that problem. But there's also, it's sort of an analogous problem to this whole in- incandescently stupid thing with Twitter and Facebook, hmm. where if the NBA doesn't allow Uyghur Lives Matter, right, then they are now in the same mess that Facebook and Twitter is about which speech do they allow and which speech do they not. And it's like the stupidity of looking at the hot mess of the Section 230 debate that that is going on for platforms like Twitter and Facebook and the NBA saying, let's veer wildly out of our lane and jump into that steaming pit of crap um, just strikes me as so short term thinking. Um, Anyway, what do you think of all that? And and when is this whole stupid moment going to end? Yeah, it's um, these kinds of weird outbreaks are are of interest to me. Uh, my newsletter this morning, I was writing about uh, 
Savonarola. Oh, yeah. And then uh, Bonfire of the Vanities. And uh, particular uh, Piero uh, de Medici, who kind of screwed things up and was an idiot who uh, well, was born to great wealth and position and was deeply insecure and uh, had some other interesting parallels with, with current times. This is <laughs> and, um, and made a lot of bad decisions for, for bad reasons and admired tough guys, but tend to get rolled by them when they um, actually um, were in a real, a real conflict. And uh, well, that, maybe it's a bit like Jaws, you know, maybe when I was 25 and I was reading about the uh, bonfire, of the vanities for the first time, or when I was reading Tom Wolfe's novel when it came out. And that's when I assume I first uh, heard the phrase and what it was it seemed that sort of stuff seemed really alien uh like you know the salem witch hunts and mccarthyism and uh and all that sort of stuff seemed really weird and primitive and uh this is you know me growing up in the 80s and 90s you know uh, not really all that far removed in history from a lot of this stuff but at the time it seemed like it was a long 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 time ago and um it's hard to believe that um you know, I'm now as far removed in history from 1991 when I finished high school as I was in 1991 from, you know, the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show and uh, that kind of stuff. So um, or more than that, even for that matter. We're farther away from happy days than happy days was from the 1950s. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> by a long shot. By a long shot. So um, that kind of stuff isn't new. You know, it's familiar. It's stuff that's been going on for a long time. Um, the, uh, you know, kind of East German culture of, uh, informers, you know, going to the government to try to ruin people that, um, either they didn't like or because they were afraid if they didn't, they would, uh, themselves be victimized in some way. You know, no one wants to be the first guy to quit clapping when Stalin gives the speech, all that business. So we don't really make that kind of, uh, progress. And, um, I'm still pretty optimistic about, uh, the future of, human civilization. Uh, people often ask me about you know, this book I wrote a few years ago called The Engineer. It's going to be awesome. And I do think that there's still a good future uh, on the way, but it doesn't have to happen here. And that's one of the things <laughs> I think often forget is that, you know, a lot of the good stuff in the 20th century and the early 21st century happened here, but it didn't happen here just because we were lucky or because we are you know, super special people. Um, it happened because we had certain kinds of institutions and norms and culture and law and opportunities that created an environment where these things could happen. And then there's also still an element of, you know, unpredictability of, you know, innovation, people inventing things and doing things that, um, that really couldn't have been foreseen. So people don't want to be poor. They don't want to be miserable. They don't want to be vulnerable. They don't want to die of easily preventable diseases. Um, they don't want to make themselves unnecessarily unhappy. And human beings increasingly have the resources to really drive their lives and their societies in a more positive and productive direction. The problem we have, I think, as Americans is um, there's a type of guy you actually meet here around Dallas sometimes who um, is both too rich and not rich enough. It's usually some trust fund guy who inherited some money, but it's not enough money to like really be a rich guy. It's just enough money to not need to get a job. And so, you know, they've got some leased Range Rover that they really can't quite afford. And, um, you know, maybe they live in an, an apartment that kind of stretches them a little bit. And they're always a little bit cash poor and always a little bit stretched. And the sort of thing that could easily be cured by, you know, gainful employment. 
which would both take up some of the time and provide you uh, with some extra income. America's kind of like that as a country. We simultaneously have too much and too little. Um, we have all the abundant material blessings, including relative peace and prosperity, that a country could ever ask for. Um, and it's made us ungrateful, I think, and a little bit lazy. And it's given us a, a sense of entitlement. Um, you know, you've always written about this a lot, and other of other people have too. But the kind of really unusual post-war era, where we had just a really unusual um, set of economic circumstances, that produced a lot of economic growth, a lot of income growth, um, a lot of growth in productivity that was never going to last forever. That's kind of where we got our assumptions from, and the fact that that hasn't lasted forever has made a lot of people really bitter and angry and disappointed, and they're looking for someone to blame. They're looking for solutions. And so every now and then, you know, someone comes along and says, hey, the solution is socialism. And a lot of people believe that. Or, hey, the solution is getting the goddamn Chinese to stop ripping us off. And uh, then a lot of people go along with that. And the, the truth is there isn't really a, a policy solution for any of this stuff unless you want to, you know, go nuke Japan again and uh, reduce Europe to a smoking ruin and literally decimate the workforces and, and all the rest of it. Go on. So, it's just, yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, <laughs> you know, I um, I should know better than a joke about that sort of thing because some people out there take it seriously. <laughs> um, anyway, so um, we feel like we are nationally and historically entitled to that post-war boom never ending, and the only times we've been happy since then have been the kind of short periods of time when we had economic conditions that were something like that, in the late 1990s, uh, part of the 80s. And um, we aren't really emotionally or psychologically or I think politically equipped to deal with a more normal economy and with more normal times. And I think that's a lot of what this is about. A lot of the conversations we have that are about, you know, elites versus the people or, you know, the cities versus the countryside, the even people in Washington like you who go to cocktail parties in Georgetown. And uh, by the way, I've been to exactly one cocktail party in Georgetown over the course of my entire life, and it was hosted by you. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, uh, that was your 50th birthday party, as I recall. Yeah, that, that was the last one I've been to in <laughs> 10, 10, 15 years, or something like yeah, that. It was uh, a lot of fun. So, um, I think a lot of the conversations we have that seem to be about culture and other things are actually really driven by that frustration. And there's a, there's a particularly male element, I think, too, that um, uh, because a lot of the traditional kind of masculine virtues like physical courage and physical endurance and capacity for violence and things like that are no longer especially useful in most situations in the 21st century uh, the way they were, say, in the 19th century. Um, and the ability of a man to go get a job that will provide him with a stable family income that is sufficient for the sort of status that he imagines himself to uh, deserve and be entitled to uh, leaves men feeling kind of useless, I think. And, um, you know, basically all of the increase in household income since the early 1970s has come from women entering the workforce and women's wages going up. By a lot of measures, men's wages peaked around 1973. And in real terms, have declined since then. Now, there's caveats about how we measure that and all the rest of that stuff. But there is something to that, I think. And um, so I think we've got you know, generations of men who are um, 
unsure of what it means to be men, to be, um, you know, fathers and providers and heads of household and that sort of thing. They feel really unmoored. And I think that's part of why they're attracted to this, you know, kind of buffoonish, uh, you know, faux masculinity of, like, you know, Trumpist-style population. You know, we're the tough guys and you're a bunch of cosmopolitan weenies and things like yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, and, um, Gorkism is what I tend to call it, you know. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> Sebastian Gorka. Never go full Gorka. Um, yeah, that kind of stuff is, well, that, that's actually one of the reasons why I started writing fiction. Because that sort of stuff you actually just need to write about in, in literature because journalism isn't really sufficient to the comedic material at hand there. I think that's probably right. Um, no, it's two points in response to some of that. Uh, first, on the point that you were making earlier about how Americans are just weird, you know, mm -hmm. this is a recurring uh, sub-theme of, of this podcast, which is uh, my defense of American exceptionalism as originally understood, right? And... American exceptionalism, as originally understood, wasn't like the exceptional gifted and talented kid. You know, it wasn't a positive connotation. It meant different, right? And there was, uh, you know, Seymour Martin, Lipsick, you know, and the, the Werner Sombart tradition, all that kind of stuff. The question was, why was America different? You know, because America was more religious than any other industrialized country. It was more violent than any other industrialized country. It had all of these weird outlier things. Some were good. Some were bad, but America was just different. And part of it stemmed from, you know, the, the classic explanation was we didn't have a feudal past. And it's very, given how small the sample was of advanced, industrialized, democratic countries, since most of them, you know, particularly at the beginning of the 20th century, you're basically talking about Europe, you know, and all of them had feudal pasts. So we were one of the first ones that didn't. So it just it made us weirder than the assumptions of the time um, could understand. And, th and that weirdness took off. And it's not, that wasn't the only reason. I mean, Canada, we have a lot of serious differences with Canada too, because we're exceptional and Canada's not. Um, and uh, the other thing I wanted to go back on was, um, oh, this thing about, how we are addicted to the economic growth of the post-World War II thing. I, I, I think you're right. I mean, what was it Brink Lindsay had that famous line in the 90s when he was on, at the beginning of his journey from libertarianism where he was saying how the, the problem is is that the, the left, uh, the, the, the right wants to live in the 1950s and the left wants to work there. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, and I always kind of wonder whether or not that obsession with that as the model, as the norm, has to do with the fact that it happened to coincide with the widespread diffusion of television. Yeah. And television has become, in many ways, our memory banks. And so it gives it, you know, my dad always used to say that, you know, when he was a kid, my dad was born in like 33 or something like that. Um, when he was a kid, World War I seemed like a million years ago. And he would say, in the 1980s, World War II still seems like it was last year, the way people talk about it, the way it dominates the culture. And I just wonder if the difference there is between, you know, how pop culture can sort of freeze our understandings of certain moments and give them a much longer half-life in our memory than, than we used to have. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, and I think particularly in terms of, um, you know, status competition that we are um, so much more immediately connected to one another that it's easier to find things for people to feel insecure about. 
or to um, to irritate us in various kinds of cultural, tribal, or you know, economic ways. I think one of the um, underappreciated um, aspects of the post-war era is that there was a great kind of social leveling, in a sense, and it took the form of people really rising into a um, a level of respectability that they had felt denied before that, you know, during the you know, Great Depression, before that, just having a largely or more heavily agrarian economy. And uh, so you didn't have a situation that you would have had in the, you know, in the 1900s or in the early 20th century of, you know, cities dominated by an urban upper class um, who all knew each other and intermarried with one another, and then people out in the countryside, and then maybe a couple of suburbs, but they were sort of, you know, they weren't what they became. And after the war, you got this, you know, kind of new culture that's driven by the automobile, uh, that's driven by personal mobility. Uh, people become homeowners rather than living in tenements. They're living in the suburbs. They have much bigger and you know, nicer houses than they expected to. Their level of consumption goes way up. So their sense of where they are in society uh, rises, not just their level of material consumption, but how they understand themselves as citizens of people and, and members of a of a social order that is ordered and ranked and, and graded in ways that we don't talk about that are very real and exist and are one of the principal drivers of, of, of uh, you know, social energy and social interactions and social relationships. Um, that can't last forever either. You know, societies can sometimes undergo really dramatic transformations because of one event. And most modern industrial economies go through this at some point where they move from being a primarily agricultural economy to a primarily industrial. And when you do that, you can make a lot more effective use of a lot of resources, including labor. And often this looks like some weird miracle that somebody figured something out. You know, that's why so many people got fooled by the Soviet Union. Exactly. Yeah. Um, because they had a police state, so they could have that change happen pretty quickly by just driving people off the farms at the point of bayonet and hurting them into factories. And it turns out when you use bulldozers instead of donkeys, you get big increases in production for a while. Right. Part of the you know, so-called Chinese miracle is, is a similar thing where you've got a country that um, moved its resources uh, from a very old-fashioned and backward uh, means of production to a uh, more modern kind of economy. And they happened to do it at a point in history where the returns from that were much higher than they were say, in the 19th century because trade is so much easier and there's so much more communication. Um, but the United States did the same thing. We went from being a largely a farm economy to a largely industrial and service economy. And you get to do that once, um, but there's not a second transformation like that. I mean, in a sense, you kind of had one in the 90s with the uh, growth of information technology, first computer and then the internet. Um, but things that really can change the value of resources, including labor, broadly in that kind of a dramatic way, there are not very many of them. And um, I think we spend a lot of time looking for that and hoping for it, which is why you hear people you talk about, well, it's going to be nanotechnology, or it's going to be biotech or something like that. These things all have a great deal of promise, and I think that they will contribute wonderful things to our uh, lives and our flourishing and our, and our prospering. But they probably aren't going to do anything like anything nearly as dramatic as changing a big country like the United States from a farm economy to a factory. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, one of the, the underappreciated reasons why China had that incredible transformational economic boom was a lot of those workers stayed hydrated. 
And that's why I want to talk to you about Hydrant. Did you know that 75% of us are walking around every day chronically dehydrated? We are suffering needlessly from frequent headaches, energy slumps, and poor focus. It doesn't have to be this way. Hydrant creates flavored electrolyte packets you mix directly into your water to make hydrating your body easy and delicious. Each rapid hydration mix has the four essential electrolytes your body needs, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc, to help you hydrate quickly and stay hydrated all day. And Hydrant is backed by research. The formula was developed by Oxford scientists to provide perfectly balanced, efficient hydration. Hydrant starts at just a buck a packet for a 30-day supply. You can save even more with a monthly subscription. And so, for 25% off your first order, go to drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code DINGO at checkout. That's D-R-I-N-K-H-Y-D-R-A-N-T.com. Drinkhydrant.com and enter promo code DINGO. Drinkhydrant.com, promo code DINGO. We thank Hydrant for uh, sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant and for hydrating productive workers around the globe. We have some questions for you from, uh, you know, the, uh, the font of wisdom that is Twitter. The great uh, sewer of American lives. Um, we will, we'll get to a couple of those in a second. Um, I, one of the questions, though, uh, there are a couple of questions on here are, are sort of rank punditry questions, so I figure we should do a little rank punditry. All right. Um, let's see. Uh, um, well, first of all, why don't we just sort of start, let's, let's just do level setting. How do you think the, the presidential race is going? <laughs> <laughs> well, anything could happen. I mean... I was very surprised by Donald Trump's victory in 2016. So I am a little bit chastened because um, I will, I admit, I, I admit that I was pretty insufferable leading up to that, just saying it's going to be a disaster. You know, you people are going to feel like idiots in the morning. Um, now I think they're going to feel like idiots four years later, but we'll see. Uh, the polls obviously don't look very good for the president and his reelection efforts right now. Um, this does not come as a great surprise to me because he's an incompetent and a boob and, um, and a Twitter troll, essentially. So, um, I mean, the fact that he is president of the United States is a shocking development in and of itself and a great testament to um, our many institutional failures and the uh, basic problems of popular democracy and all the rest of it. And a really, really good case for the old-fashioned smoke-filled back rooms where people say, no, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Uh, you know, as I said earlier, I was writing about um, Renaissance Florence earlier, and one of the great debates was between, um, you know, Florence was theoretically a republic, but it was really kind of run by the Medici as though it were a princely state. And um, the, the great debate was between, you know, what they called Governo Stretto and Governo Lago, uh, which is to say, you know, narrow administration or broad administration. So everyone accepted, for instance, that there would be a committee of people somewhere who would vet candidates for public office and say these people are eligible and these people are not. Debate was, how narrow do we get about this? Do we make lots and lots of people, the general public, available to uh, or eligible for public office and make political power to them? Or do we restrict it more? And um, I think that in a healthy democracy, particularly one as big and complicated as the United States, you essentially need to do both things at the same time. You need to have a very broad-based liberal democracy with lots of participation, 
and equality before the law and everyone gets one vote and all that stuff. These are all worthwhile principles, not just because they're good, I'm not even sure they're all that good, but because they're effective, they work, they produce um, legitimacy and consent and all the things that you need. But you should also have, I think, you know, kind of choke points of uh, Governor Strato on some of that stuff where you've got institutions like political parties and other kinds of organizations that can exercise a certain kind of leadership, maybe just simply amounting to veto power. You know, a healthy Democratic Party wouldn't have let Bernie Sanders get anywhere near the nomination twice. Um, a healthy Republican Party wouldn't have let Donald Trump anywhere near the primary, um, beginning with the fact that he wasn't a member of the party, um, as Sanders isn't a member of his so-called party either. Um, so we need some, some kind of choke points. We need some, you know, some blocking. <laughs> we need, uh, some places that are uh, a little less democratic. And, uh, I, I wonder about our friends on the left sometimes who are often here saying we need to democratize the economy and democratize this and democratize that. And I would say, look who the president of the United States is. This guy terrifies you. This is what democracy does. Um, now maybe you tell yourself some story about, well, it's the electoral college and he's not really a product of democracy because democracy can't fail. It can only be failed. And, uh, but that's just simply not true. And, uh, you know, Republican domination of Congress for much of the last 20 years has been the result of the democracy that our friends on the left say that they trust and believe in. And, um, I don't think they really do. I think it's more of a rhetoric than anything else, but there are some good faith people over there who really do believe this stuff. And uh, I just hope that, um, if nothing else, the the lessons of the Trump years might get them to understand that um, there's more to good policy and good government and stability and productivity than just saying, well, the people have spoken and now we must follow. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually, I mean, this is a constant theme on this podcast as well. And I, my LA Times column today is, I think, almost literally used the words you've used about Democratic Party should never let Joe, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders, you know, run. And, you know, but the, 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 the way I sort of, my shorthand for it is, is that a vibrant democracy depends on a vibrant number of institutions that are in, internally undemocratic, mm-hmm. um, starting with the family, right? You don't, a, a properly functioning family does not put up every decision for a vote, particularly when it has kids under the age of, you know, 16 or whatever. And um, the the Marines do not take a vote about which hills to take, right? The Catholic Church doesn't conduct a vote about, you know, which sacraments to believe in or any of that kind of stuff. Um, businesses don't put up a vote on every question about what the best strategy is. And one of the problems, I, I think, at the heart of a lot of our problems in our politics today is that People thought that since parties are supposedly integral to the democratic system, that they would work better if they were democratized, mm-hmm. when in reality, that was a really stupid idea. Um, and I'm not saying that you couldn't have some democratic functions, right? We had primaries for 100 years, but they just didn't matter very much. I mean, they were interesting sort of temperature-taking moments and tests of organizational ability, but they really weren't about a democratic process. As I, as I read my column today, you know, if you look at the results of the 1968 Democratic primaries, um, Hubert Humphrey comes in like sixth in the terms of the popular vote. He gets like 2% of the popular vote. George Smathers of Florida, I think, got twice the popular vote of him. Um, and Eugene McCarthy got like 34% of the popular vote. Humphrey was the nominee. 
Um, the, one of the reasons why LBJ resigned was that he thought it was, first of all, you didn't want, you want to avoid the humiliation of defeat, but he also thought that was the best thing for his party. And um, I think it just sort of tells you something about the moment that we're in that it just seems like, you know, uh, talking about whether or not the Lannisters will get the, the high, you know, the throne to talk about, well, maybe Donald Trump should see, not run for the good of his party. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, no, and, and who would go tell him that? And then, like, telling him, you know, you know, you really should do this for the good of the Republican Party would be like telling him you should really do this because vests have no sleeves. I mean, it would just make no sense to him whatsoever, right? Yeah. And there was a time when, you know, the parties, because they were institutions that formed character, rather than, as Yuval would put it, were platforms for people to preen and perform um, and display their character, um, that people would subordinate their personal interests for the good of the party. That was a better form of partisanship than what we have have now. But anyway, I wanted to do rank punditry stuff, but I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to talk about how uh, we need to bring back smoke-filled rooms uh, because that's... Yeah. So that's if I had my own money on it, I wouldn't bet on Trump being reelected. Um, if I have a preference for the outcome in 2020, my main preference is that it be a landslide one way or the other. Uh, I don't want another, you know, nail biter close election that leaves a lot of things unresolved. Both of the parties deserve to be defeated and humiliated and, uh, decimated. Um, so I want to make sure one of them gets it now as to which one gets it. I, I often point out that I left the Republican Party in 2008 over Arlen Specter. <laughs> That's adorable. That's horse and buggy stuff right there. <laughs> so, um, you know, my sense of uh, sympathy is is pretty well exhausted for Republicans and their party. Um, I hate what the Democrats will do with power. Um, I hate the people they'll appoint, judges, all the rest of it. Let me rephrase that. I don't hate the people they appoint. I hate that they will appoint those people um, and what they will do. Um, I think there's way too much political hatred personally in our country right now. And I don't want to contribute to it any more than I absolutely have to, which is so hard not to because I'm so full of hate. <laughs> uh, I have Preach. so much to share. <laughs> um, you want to you give of the best parts of yourself, yeah. but, you know, but you, sometimes you can't. Yeah. Uh, so so on this I'd, I'd love there to be a landslide. I'd love there to be another one of those, you know, uh, 48 state elections or 49 state elections, although I don't think that's very likely either. Um, so where, where do you come down? I mean, on this, forget the Trump phrasing of it, but the you do hear from a lot of people who I respect who, or I hear from a lot of people I respect who, you know, are legitimately scared that Biden will be basically a battering ram or a figurehead for the AOC crowd and, hmm. and the socialists. And I am, whenever that veers into flight 93-ism, mm -hmm. I, I push back because I think that is, it's a terrible way to think about any election. Um, you know, maybe the 1931 German elections, you could do that for, um, but uh, um, it does seem to me that the 
as likely as not, Biden ends up becoming much more like LBJ than FDR, right? Because yeah. the, the animal spirits on the left, Black Lives Matter, the Green New Deal, all of those guys, um, they are not going to have a lot of patience for incrementalism, uh, for uh, process and all of that kind of thing. And if they can demand the memory holding of 20-year-old episodes of the Golden Girls, because people, the old ladies were wearing mud facials because it looks like blackface. Um, the idea that you can count on them being utterly reasonable in their expectations for Biden strikes me as a little far-fetched. And so if you try to game it out in your head, I mean, predictions are kind of stupid, but it does feel to me like a far more plausible scenario is that the Democrats will get some stuff through in the first year or two by the nature of the beast of having if not a landslide, then a big win. But then it's back to the Argon and trench warfare and fighting over inches and, and all the rest, which as a conservative doesn't horrify me. Um, but what do you think? Well, I think that, you know, when Trump was elected in 2016 and came into office with a Republican House and a Republican Senate, it didn't turn out to be a great victory for conservative um, ideas or for Trumpian ideas for that matter. So when Trump had you know, unified Republican control of Congress, his biggest legislative win was an utterly conventional Republican tax cut bill um, that Paul Ryan would have signed if he were president, that Marco Rubio would have signed if he were president, that Jeb Bush would have signed if he were president. And then they promptly you know, lost. And, um, and then not much, not much happened thereafter. So to the extent that Trump has really gotten a lot done, he has been essentially someone who has signed conventional Republican legislation and gone along with um, the old conservative and Republican institutions, you know, nominating a bunch of Federalist Society guys to court jobs, um, hiring a bunch of National Review people for um, <laughs> various positions. And, uh, you know, so he came as this guy who was running against the establishment, but he pretty quickly figured out that he needed the establishment to govern. So the question really is, where's, where is the Democratic establishment? And I don't think they're quite AOC territory, but I don't think they're really a Clintonite party still either. I think they're in some kind of transition between those two things. So, but we know what they want. Um, they want a more what they imagine to be a more European-style healthcare system, um, or particularly a Canadian or English monopoly-style uh, healthcare system. When they say they like European systems, they normally don't know actually what they're talking about because a lot of different systems in Europe, and they mostly aren't single-payer monopolies. But um, and then what they want is um, is uh, more money and less accountability for people in the in public sector. You know, I got an um, email press release the other day from some guy who just won an election for president of the union that represents uh, prison workers, uh, correctional officers. And it was a wonderfully refreshing uh, press release because his agenda was spelled out in a really clear and unapologetic way. What we want is less discipline for our members and, uh, and more money and fewer work hours. And uh, it, was, it was written as though it were a parody written by guys over at CEI or Cato or something. <laughs> But um, it was it was for real. And he won, of course, uh, on that program. because That's what they want. So I think in a sense, and it sounds funny to say, but conservatives are in a way, I think, lucky that so much of the energy on the left 
is dedicated to knocking down statues of 19th century abolitionists and waging war on the memory of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, these things are bad for you as a culture and as a society, but they aren't actually serious policy proposals. They aren't things that are going to really fundamentally reshape the way the government works, the way that the New Deal did or the Great Society did, or the way that the creation of a British NHS-style healthcare system would. So the fact that they are focused on this kind of symbolic, cultural, small ball stuff is, in some ways, I think, uh, useful uh, to us. I'll tell you how I see it. Um, You know, I live in Texas, and people often joke about Austin being a kind of left-wing exclave in uh, Texas, you know, a little corner of Berkeley surrounded by the real America. but it's it's not, you know, in, in Austin, where I went to college and um, you know, spent some time, the kind of left-wingery in Austin is dorm room left-wingery. It's people who, you know, read Foucault and Derrida and uh, who care about intersectionality and things like that. Whereas the city governments in places like Houston and Dallas are much more serious, old-fashioned, you know, status, social democrat left-wingery. Um, Houston is, functionally speaking, I think a much, much more left-wing city than, say, Austin is. And so a lot of the motive forces in the Democratic Party are, I hate using the word elites, but this is what we're talking about. People who have professional jobs with good incomes, who went to good colleges and things like that. And they care very deeply about things like intersectionality and, uh, and these symbolic cultural issues. And they care less about, you know, old fashioned socialist redistribution because they're rich and everyone they know is rich. And uh, so you get a very different kind of world when that's your your way of, of looking at things. And some of this stuff is really amusing. Like I, I often wish I could go back in time. Like and I'd like to go right back before the Stonewall riots and go talk to gay people in New York and tell them, you know, in 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 2020, where I come from, I was walking past a shop window the other day, and it was um, a famous Swiss watchmaker, and they had a rainbow themed. Uh, watch they had put out for Pride Week, you know, with uh, a rainbow band on it. I'm saying in the future, we have homosexuality-themed luxury goods <laughs> all over the country. Uh, gay marriage is mandated in every state. And the big debate is whether the history books do a good enough job telling the story of trans women of color in the gay liberation movement. <laughs> and they will say, we're in the history books? Why do we want to get married? <laughs> and, and various sorts of things. So those are the fights we're having right now. They're very different from the fights we're being had in the 1970s, the 1980s. They're very different from the fights we're having politically, I think, in the 1930s, the 1960s. And um, I hate to say this because it's important for me to pay, for people to pay attention because this is how I make my living. But I find this stuff deeply, deeply boring and tedious. I don't think there's much to it. You know, you can knock down all the statues of Jefferson Davis all the country. The schools are still going to suck in Philadelphia on Monday. Um, black people are still going to be a lot poorer on average than white people. Uh, they're still going to have worse social outcomes in all sorts of ways. Um, and those are problems that can be mitigated and addressed, I think, if we really wanted to. And if we were interested in um, trying to pursue those policies. But we're interested in, you know, talking about, well, Jefferson Davis was a really, really bad man. Well, okay. Yeah. Stipulated. (laughs) One of the things about working about at National Review is, you know, people like, you know, want me to defend stuff that people wrote in the 1950s. And um, what about this thing that your magazine published in an editorial in 1957? 
I wasn't born in 1950. <laughs> and I think a lot of my colleagues are wrong about a lot of things now. Yeah. Uh, much less in, you know, 1955. Yeah. On the, on the NR stuff. I mean, my, my response to all that for years and years, you know, obviously when I was still at NR is, um, and I was wrong about a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And so was the conservative movement was wrong about a bunch of stuff. And then once you stipulate that, look, once you concede that the right was wrong about a lot of stuff, you can then say, OK, but it's also more complicated than the caricature that you're getting from, you know, the New Republic types about NR's history, because there was pushback even at the time from other people at NR sure. for some of the things that we were wrong about at NR. And I use we in the gross in the in the royal sense. Um, uh, well, the thing is, I mean, conservatives, you know, conservatives are by nature resistant to social change, which means that a lot of things that conservatives want will look bad in 50 years. Right. Um, that doesn't mean that we should take a more radical attitude towards social change in all circumstances. It means that there are changes that need to happen and changes that don't need to happen, changes that are productive and changes that aren't. And conservatives... Um, are cautious about these things, which will um, put us on the wrong side of things on, from time to time. As uh, Edmund Burke said, uh, I must bear with infirmities until they fester into crimes. Um, <laughs> and I, I once got into a big fight with Peter Beinart. I used to do this video chat thing with him, and he read me some quote that was the spirit of that, was that Buckley conceded that, you know, by not, by being reflexively resistant to change, that sometimes you're going to end up being wrong from the vantage point of history on some things. And Peter's like, are you comfortable with that? I mean, do you feel that way too? And I said, yeah. You know, and he couldn't get his head around the idea that part of the role of small C conservatism and, you know, but also big C conservatism is to be the break to the other side's gas. Yeah. Right. You know, the other side, you know, it's like my old argument about why I, you know, I, I've become much more libertarian than I, when I first started saying this, but I used to say, you know, the thing about libertarians is that they're, they're sort of like the Irish for the old English kings. They're incredibly useful for unleashing on your enemies, but you wouldn't want one on the throne. Um, and, uh, and the, so I've always argued that there should always be to avoid groupthink at minimum. There should always be one libertarian in any meeting, meeting of policymakers, because you just need one person to always ask the emperor has no clothes question. Like, yeah. why are we doing anything at all? Right. You know, or why, you know, why are we trying to fix this? Um, or is this the government's job? Just have someone ask that question will elicit better policies than if everybody works on the assumption that policymakers, of course, must leap on any problem they see anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, but I want to push back a little bit. So there's something that, you know, you and I, we often write about similar things from different angles. And one of the things that you and I have both written a couple times over the years is how um, the, the left increasingly is becoming, um, is, is, is absorbing the, the, the metaphysics and the philosophy of, of campus, mm. of college campuses, right? Uh, um, I wrote a piece for NR. I don't know, 15 years ago called U, as in university, Utopia. Um, and and, um, and the, the, the argument is, is that there's something about the college experience for elites that 
um, makes them think that this is the way world the world should really work. Mm-hmm. You know, and I often I love ta- telling this to college students because college students think that they are incredibly independent, particularly at elite co- schools where someone else is paying for everything. And you know, and I'll be like, so let me get this straight: your rent is paid for, your food is paid for, your utilities are paid for. Uh, the security is provided by other people, um, uh, and all that is asked of you is that you read interesting things and maybe write a paper or two about them and show up to class to learn interesting things, and you think you're independent. <laughs> um, and, um, and but it seems to me, you know, Tim Carney made this point recently. He says, you know, for years, conservatives generally used to say, just wait until these snowflakes go out in the real world. And they will discover what real life is like. And they'll be like, who's FICA? And, you know, all those dumb jokes. <laughs> um, and uh, and Carney was like, no, it turned out it was the other way around. We should be afraid of them. Yeah. And um, because in part because leadership at all sorts of institutions are absolutely terrified of these, you know, uh, they're not quite Maoists. They're not quite Jacobins. But, you know, there's something in there. They're, there's a Venn diagram that they fall into where those things fall into as well. I'm very resentful of the fact that my Caitlin's have been eclipsed by Karen's. <laughs> um, but the, the, I agree with you that the, the, the merits of the arguments about a lot of these culture war things and toppling statues are boring because there is no interesting argument for decapitating a statue of an abolitionist who died fighting the Confederacy um, it's just stupid nihilism. Um, but at the same time, lots of institutions are being changed from below by these sort of new class larvae from uh, these petri dish, these campus petri dishes. And so I'm with you that the substance of the arguments is kind of boring, but I think the problem of them is 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 more serious. Oh, yeah, I, I, I don't disagree with that. Um, I mean, ultimately, culture matters more than than law does and more than policy does in any given year. That's what ultimately will really change things. And I think there's kind of a, there's a good faith version of that sort of Ivy League progressivism, I think. And it's one that I, it's not too hard to understand, I think. So you say you're, you're Barack Obama and, uh, you know, you've gone to Harvard Law School and you were in some ways shaped by that institution. It made a huge difference to your life and your life turns out pretty well. Um, say you're not president yet. You're just, you know, Barack Obama, community organizer with a wife with a suspiciously high paying hospital job. And um, life looks pretty good from your point of view. And I think it's natural for people to say if other people made the same kinds of decisions I did, were affiliated with the same kinds of institutions, had the same sorts of values, the same pattern of life, then things would turn out well for them as well. And they would be happy and fulfilled like me. Because if you're someone like, well, again, people like us in some ways, we get to live like college students. Anyway, spend a lot of time reading interesting books, having fun conversations, writing, doing stuff that doesn't really feel like work um, a lot of the time. Um, You know, you kind of feel like you put something over on the world that you get paid for doing this. And uh, I do anyway. No, I do too. I I, I agree. We're very lucky people. You know, pretty good for people like us. And I think it's natural if you're, you know, Barack Obama or someone like that, to say, well, then the real problem is how do we get more people to go to Harvard Law School? Or how do we get more people prepared to do something like go to Harvard Law School? Which is why so much of our debate about you know, social mobility and, uh, and economic reform is based on getting more people to go to college 
or getting more people to go to graduate school and those sorts of things. And we talk very little about the high school dropout rates in big cities and, and that kind of stuff, because that's just so alien to the experience of the people who actually make the policy and dominate the policymaking conversation. I mean, it's not we don't ever talk about it. We think about it sometimes, but it's kind of abstract. You know, um, how many people in, in Barack Obama's social circle dropped out of high school? I bet not very many. Yeah. And um, how many people, you know, in our social circle dropped out? At least out after he left Hawaii, because in Hawaii, a lot of people drop out of high school. But um, I shouldn't say a lot of people, but it's, it's probably more common than people might think. Maybe not at the school he went to, but, you know. At, in yeah, he went to a pretty fancy school. Yeah, he went to a fancy school. Yeah. Wouldn't love it. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, also, I mean, I, I, that's all fair, I think. But the so I was listening to Christine Rosen on Bill Crystal's conversations with Crystal podcast thing, and she was making the point. She's very critical of cancel culture and all of that, and I love Christine. But she made one point that, and I only listened to it in the car, drive here, so maybe she clarifies in the parts I haven't listened to yet, but she says, you know, one of the good things about this younger generation is that it's, 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 it's remarkably tolerant and it hasn't become less tolerant as it ages, you know, which, and I get the point that she's talking about. Um, but it seems to me they, that, that tolerance for traditionally discriminated against groups uh, has increased remarkably, right? And to the point where actually the word tolerance is no longer allowed because it is sufficiently, it is insufficiently celebratory. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, uh, big chunks of the culture and these, and, and these people that we're talking about are less tolerant of people who don't share their overall worldview, right? I mean, it's, it's sort of like, what is that guy Delgado who, you know, in the postmodern lefty guy who said minorities should flee enlightenment-based democracies. Um, of course, he had tenure and was never planned on leaving. Um, right. But um, this idea that, uh, but he used to make this argument that there's a constant, there's a there's a uh, immutable and unchanging and irreducible amount of racism in society, and it just gets rearranged to different people. And hmm. I think that was wrong. But I do think that there is something to be said that you cannot have, I don't want to sound like Carl Schmidt here, but you cannot sound, you cannot have conceptions of tolerance unless you have some group to be intolerant of. And, um, uh, and the intolerance of people, of these people in the name of tolerance, it's very Marcusean, right? (laughs) They are, they are intolerant in the, in the cause of tolerance are, utterly lacking the ability to imagine that people might just see some issues slightly differently. You know, yeah. look at what's happening with JK Rowling and all that kind of stuff. And I think this comes from the, this comes from the campus left, right? Where if you're part of the traditionally aggrieved groups, um, that, uh, the worst thing, the worst sin in the world is to hurt someone's self-esteem to make their point of view seem less than, or whatever the phrasing is. Um, and the people who do that are now the new acceptable, um, uh, you know, groups, uh, uh, untouchables, as it were. And you've had some experience with this. I've had some experience with this. Um, and I don't think that this is a very healthy thing for the culture. And I don't 
it make the last two weeks of watching the 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 bonfire of the asininities um, has made me more uh, pessimistic about where the culture is going than I've been in a very very long time. So it's, that's one of the reasons I want to have an optimist like you on to uh, <laughs> to correct yeah, that me. Actually, is the source of, of my the qualifications on my optimism that you know I say the future is going to happen, but it doesn't have to happen here. Is that if you have a culture of enforced conformism and intellectual homogeneity uh, on important questions like, you know, moral questions, political questions, lifestyle questions, then you're less likely to get that kind of dynamism and innovation that really drives uh, human flourishing. And um, that's one of my principal worries about our our medium to long-term future. Um, And since you said uh, that the the future is going to be awesome, but it doesn't have to happen here. Mm-hmm. Um, let's switch topics to the fact that uh, you are, in fact, planning or hoping or trying to organize your life in such a way so as to move to Switzerland. Yeah, we've been talking about it for a while. I'm sort of getting a little bit more serious about it. So, um, yeah. Uh, uh, tell me more about it. I'm, I'm jealous of this. I'm a huge Switzerland fan. I'm, I'm very – one of my great historical peeves is that Switzerland gets – more crap for its behavior during World War II than Austria does. Um, but uh, we can talk about that another time. Um, so tell me what you're thinking here. Why Switzerland? And, and uh, my understanding is pretty hard to become a citizen, right? So you're not talking about like renouncing your U.S. citizenship. But, uh, I should point out that I haven't talked to National Review about this yet, so I'll have to uh, figure out a way to do that. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the upsides of the... Um, quarantine is that it's become you know, even more clear to uh, both me and my wife that we can do most of our work uh, remotely, that we don't need to visit a lot of places, uh, that we can, we can do what we do uh, from home or from other places. So I've, I've liked Switzerland for a long time, and I've been traveling there for um, a long, long time. And uh, as you know, I got married a couple of years ago, and just about to be two, in fact. And um, my uh, wife don't really like Switzerland as much as I do. She also has some family connections there. She's got some family who live there. So we've spent a fair amount of time there over the years, over the last couple of years ourselves. And uh, we both sort of like the same uh, same place. So I like Switzerland partly because I don't speak any of the local languages there, which is nice. So other people's conversations are just sort of, you know, chatter in the background. I don't have to listen to them. Unfortunately, my wife speaks French, so she doesn't have that um, option. And um, so, yeah, we've just been we've been thinking about it for a while. And we are trying to uh, kind of organize stuff so that we can get that done. As you said, it's not a super easy thing to get permission to relocate there. Although it's a lot easier if you're not someone who's looking for a local work permit or a path to uh, citizenship and, and that sort of thing. So essentially, staying there as a kind of long term tourist is. Um, yeah, it's not super easy to do, but it's relatively easy to do. You know, Switzerland, as you know, is a very bureaucratic place, and uh, they've got all sorts of fill this out in triplicate and uh, rules and uh, and regulations and such. But they do bureaucracy really pretty well, and um, so uh, the, the process is um, going to be laborious, but it's 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 reasonably well organized and, and reasonably efficient. So um, it is awfully expensive to live there. And, so that is a, uh, a consideration, um, but I think I think we're probably we'd like to do it in two years. We think 
Um, so two years from now, if we could make that happen, then we'll, we'll do it. And maybe we'll do a trial run at first, you know, see if we like it for a year. If not, we can always come back. And I uh, mean, you haven't lived in the same place for more than what, like 18 months for a while. And you, you uh, moved around. So I lived in New York City for eight years, I guess. Although I moved. Three Was it eight years? Really? I moved three times in New York, I think. For seven years, maybe. So I was in Connecticut and in the Bronx and then Manhattan for a while. Um, I was in Vegas for a year and Houston for a year. I've been in Dallas for a couple of years now. Um, so you're due. Yeah, I'm due. I'm due. And uh, no, I am. Um, I like the orderliness of Switzerland. Um, I like the uh, kind of button down uh, culture, the predictability of it, the uh, kind of unenforced social discipline. You know, Switzerland is kind of an interesting place for libertarians because it's not what you would call a libertarian country. I mean, it's got a lot of, you know, regulations on a lot of things like, you know, healthcare and, and that kind of thing. And it's relatively high tax, at least compared to the United States, although not compared to uh, Western Europe. But um, they've got this great kind of um, unenforced social discipline where people just kind of uh, cooperate and follow rules and uh, and sort of mind their own business and behave themselves in various ways without being really forced to do it. Um, the story I like to tell people is um, I was in Zurich some years ago, and there's a big train station in the middle of Zurich and a traffic circle that goes around the train station. And then there are crosswalks every so often on the traffic circle. And it's really busy. Um, but there aren't any lights on the crosswalks. When pedestrians come up, traffic just stops because that's what you do. And people know to kind of, you know, follow the rules. Um, you know, you compare that with, um, you know, Dallas, where every place you go where there are masks required, you know, for a coronavirus, the compliance rate of maybe 60%, I would say something like that. Um, some people really making a point of, you know, not going along with it. And uh, these are just, you know, very different kinds of cultures and very different sorts of societies. And um, one thing that I'm hoping to do in the near future is move my work efforts more toward writing books and less toward doing daily journalism. And I think uh, being outside of the uh, stream of American daily political life and journalistic life might, uh, might help that some. And, uh, but also I'm just kind of, you know, I don't like people all that much and um, you know, Swiss people pretty well leave you alone, I think. And uh, they're super helpful and friendly when you need something and uh but they don't you know go out of the way to bother you and uh yeah we kind of we kind of both like it there so no I, I love switzerland i really do um uh what parts have you spent time in uh been to zurich a few times um I, my honeymoon was in uh at the riffelalp part of my honeymoon which is this great hotel above zermatt mm -hmm. um driven across big chunks of switzerland a few times uh did a fantastic junket when I was still a young person for the U.S. Swiss Foundation, and we spent about 10 days just doing a whole tour of the entire, not the entire country, but you know, it's, it's small enough. It's like Israel, where if you have um, people showing you around and it's organized, you can see a big chunks of the country, you know, in a fairly short period of time. Uh, we called it a sort of far, forced march through paradise. Um, stayed in uh, the year where I did it, the uh, Nestle was the chief sponsor, and right. whoever the chief sponsor is puts you up. So we stayed in the Nestle corporate headquarters in Vevey, which there are worse places to stay. Yeah, um, so that's where I, is, right near Vevey. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's just that it's I, I'm a more of a mountain guy than a beach guy, 
Um, I know you wouldn't think that from my physique, but it's true. And um, and I do think, you know, listening to how many places you've lived in over the last 20 years, I can't help but think that it kind of fits your typical pattern of a serial killer and the fact that Switzerland has complicated extradition rules. It's true. Uh, I'm not willing to wholly dismiss as coincidence. Yeah. Uh, but There's actually a little a funny thing I know a little about. <laughs> and I know about this because I wrote something about the case of uh, Roman Polanski. And, um, you know, Polanski was arrested at the airport, I guess, in um, Geneva some years ago when there was a warrant out for him in, uh, in France. And one of the things I quite like about the Swiss way of doing things is that the rules are the rules. And you don't get special treatment if you're a celebrity or anything else. And uh, you don't get special treatment if you're rich. You know, if there's a lawful warrant, there's a lawful warrant. And there was this big, you know, hue and cry that was made when the Swiss arrested him. And a lot of cultural figures spoke out against it. You know, and how can we treat this great filmmaker this way? And the Swiss were just like, well, the law says. Well, the law. And um, I kind of like that about them. Uh, another kind of story like that. I happened to be in Switzerland when Tina Turner was uh, getting Swiss citizenship. She's lived there for a long, long time. Uh, I think more than 30 years. Which I, I learned from you, and I'm still kind of baffled by it, but it's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. So she, um, well, they don't have any uh, capital gains tax there. And I believe that her royalties are all organized so that she gets uh, essentially tax free income. It's something I was told anyway. I, I don't have any real information about that. And so. she speaks German, right? She speaks German. She's been married to a German music executive for a long time. But, you know, even Tina Turner had to trundle down to her uh, local city council where she lives and do an interview and convince them that she had enough money to live there and that she wouldn't be, you know, a public ward. And that she was, you know, and that she could speak good German. And uh, you have to do your interview in the local language. One of the weird things about government there, which I, I quite like, is that final immigration decisions are not made by the national government. They're made by the local government. Yeah, I love that. I you love don't that. get permission to live in Switzerland. You get permission to live in wherever you live. And uh, there's a great story government. about that lady who was a, such a colossal pain in the ass who would <laughs> la- launch petitions to have cowbells banned because they didn't. She didn't like the sound of cowbells. Wrong. And she, yeah, she lived in this. <laughs> she lived in this village for like 25 years or something like that. She comes up for you know. Uh, citizenship and their, her neighbors are like, nope. She's too nope. annoying. <laughs> yeah, you're too annoying. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. I love that stuff. Um, not scalable for the United States, I think. But no, yeah, I wrote a piece for National Review about government in Switzerland a couple years ago. It's called the Helvetica Type. I was proud of that headline. That's good. That's good. And um, yeah, the thing about Swiss is it's full of Swiss people, and uh, the United States is full of maniacs. And so these, these these two things don't work very well. That's one of the dumb things about our discourse I don't like, too, is that, you know, it's particularly a left-wing thing, but um, not always. People say, well, look, this is how they do healthcare in this country. Why don't we just do that? Or this is how they, you know, have Sweden's got really, really high taxes. If we had high taxes, we'd be like Sweden, too. No, no, we wouldn't. And um, just like conservatives can look at, you know, Finland's public education system where they've got, you know, a lot of school choice. And... Yeah, maybe there's some things to learn, but just simply replicating the Finnish rules wouldn't give us Finnish outcomes any more than air bombing the Middle East with copies of the American Constitution is going to produce, uh, you know, a Madisonian republic. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, that gets back to the American exceptionalism thing, right? I mean, yeah. South America 
there are a lot of countries that basically mimicked our constitution and had presidential systems. It turns out that they didn't work in those countries for all sorts of complicated reasons because culture is complicated. Charles Murray has that famous line where he says, you know, look, there's a well-established finding in the social science literature that pretty much anything will work for a while with Swedes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, but um, all right, so we're, we're, we're running a little long here, and um, I want to get to, I covered some of the questions that people asked, but I feel like since we've talked about a lot about Texas, we've sung the praises of Switzerland, we called Americans maniacs, I think Mark, whoever he is, his question of why you hate Ohio so much uh, needs to be addressed. Why do you hate Ohio? It's just, it's the worst state. Um, Worse than Delaware, really? Do you want to stand by that? There's not very much Delaware. (laughs) You know, if you've got got to eat a big bowl of feces or a little bowl of feces, then you eat the little bowl. I see. Okay. Uh, Delaware is less expensive that way. Also, Delaware is a good place for shopping if you live in Pennsylvania, in tax situation. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Ohio is a state that just gets in your way when you go in other places. And there's a lot of it. It's full of mutants. It's, um, so Ohio kind of has the worst aspects of the industrial Northeast combined with the worst aspects of the South. And uh, it's that weird kind of, you know, mid-Atlantic to Appalachian crossover. And every time I've ever been in Ohio, something bad has happened to me, or I was in Ohio because something bad had happened to me. So, <laughs> I suspect the, 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 the latter stories are better than the former stories. <laughs> um, but uh, there were people who had to be got out of jail. Let's just uh, put it that way. Okay. Fell to me to do so. And um, yeah, so yeah, I lived in Pennsylvania for a long time, as you know. And uh, Ohio really gets in your way if you're in Pennsylvania and you've got to go west uh, very often. So not a, not a great state. Um, none of the cities in Ohio are worth a damn, really. Like Cleveland's pretty awful. Cincinnati's terrible. And um, when you've got, you know, Pittsburgh right there, which is a pretty good city, actually, by way of comparison, and a lot going for it. They've got some good examples around it, but they just can't get it together. No, it's a work day. Um, I just, I, I'm not going to engage on this. I just want... Uh, the, the many decent, hardworking people of Ohio who listen to this podcast and are members of the dispatch community, as well as Jack Butler, to know that I do not necessarily subscribe to everything that, that Kevin said here. I am still far more willing to uh, denigrate uh, Delaware um, than um, – because as far as I can tell – look, there's, there are things in Ohio like Sandusky's awesome. Mm. I kind of like Cleveland. I got to tell you, I, I agree that – Cincinnati's chili is really overrated, um, but uh, Ohio's got some like really cool architecture because it had rich industrialists from in the 19th century that built cool things. Yeah. Um, and I know Delaware has some of that as well. But uh, Detroit, for that matter. Yeah, I mean, but I agree with you about Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is a much better city than people realize. It's yeah. like this hidden city um, that routinely gets listed in the top 10 best cities to live in, most livable cities. Mm-hmm. And yet everyone seems to, th- and it's, it's what's one of the things that's fascinating to me is if you look at Pittsburgh and Detroit, they're both faced with the same economic industrial deindustrialization issues at the same time. And somehow, I mean, Pittsburgh had a rough spot too, but it never ended up like Detroit did. I mean, there was something about, it's an example of how governance kind of works. Detroit had much worse riots. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, Made Detroit suffer the way it did. 
Um, you know, there's a movie about Basquiat that was made a few years ago, The Painter. And it's a movie I'm thinking of where David Bowie plays Andy Warhol, who's from Pittsburgh. And he's in New York, and he's having kind of a rough time of it. And one of his artist friends says to him in this really sneering way, well, you could always go back to Pittsburgh. <laughs> Andy Warhol thinks about it for a second, and he says in that kind of funny Andy Warhol way, I like Pittsburgh. <laughs> All right. Uh, last couple of questions very quickly. Uh, Sam Osborne wants to know your most overrated, underrated writers and thinkers. Uh, you can answer uh, long, on short, long or short on that. Mm, gosh. Um, it's complicated. Um, overrated, um, other than, you know, Jonah, obviously. But obviously. Yeah. Jonah is one of my favorite writers. Um, I don't want to answer that one right now. There's just too much to say on it, and I would have to talk about it for half an hour. Fair enough. That's fair enough. Okay. Uh, uh, I would say the overrated people are everyone who has a particular school of thought attached to his name. I th I'm sure we can come up with exceptions, but I generally, I think I agree with that. Yeah. Um, all right. I don't want to, I, I just don't want to talk about David Foster Wallace. Um, so we covered Ohio, which was the one I was particularly interested in. Uh, someone want to know why you called my French bashing silly, but since I think some of my French bashing was silly, I'm not, I'm not particularly interested in your answer because I think I probably agree with you. Um, uh, we've covered statues. Um, and someone around asked me, why is D.C. statehood a terrible idea? But that's a question for me I can answer anytime because it is a terrible idea. Um, I, you know, I think it's a bad idea. I just... Uh, I, more, I think it's just a terrible waste of time. But anyway, you don't know. You don't have any passionate issues about DC statehood, do you? I think it would be better to make New York City a republic. I like it. Sort yeah. of like the v Venetian Republic, but New York. Not, not total secession, but make it like sort of a Freeport. You know, uh -huh. a kind of independent city state within the United States. I like it. I think um, there, there's a case to be made for that. Uh, the free city of Bravos, but uh, New York. I mean, you would. Some um, some regulations would have to change, I think, um, I think in yeah. New York. Yeah, but so be it. New York um, is radically different from the rest of the country, um, but it's got a really great, interesting local culture. It um, is no longer quite the dominating commercial and financial center of the country that it used to be, but it's still a very important one. Um, yeah, let it let let New York do its own thing. Yeah. I like it. There, um, Michael Brown used to make the point, or he made the point, because um, this is something where you've changed my thinking a lot on. I mean, I, I, I was ba in a basic agreement, but I think your point about how the the rights fixation with how urban America isn't real America has mm -hmm. gotten just stupid. You know, yeah. um, most people, most tourists who come to America do not visit rural. Ohio or Oklahoma or whatever. They go to New York, they go to San Francisco, they go to Chicago, they go to cities. Um, they go to Southern California, which is sort of a co collection of cities. Um, and uh, and the you idea that- You get a lot of Germans in Lubbock in the summers. Do you really? Yeah, the Buddy Holly Museum. Oh, interesting. Love Buddy interesting. Um, But, uh, Michael Brown used to make the point. He's like, you know, all those World War II movies that you see where there's like in the in the the 
the squad or the not quite the platoon, but the, the unit. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's always like a southerner. There's always you know a midwesterner, and there's always like one smart aleck guy from like Brooklyn or the Bronx, right? Yeah. And he says he makes point that that in, from the 1930s to the 1960s, that was demographically accurate because basically one in ten Americans were New Yorkers. I mean, like yeah. New York City New Yorkers at the time, and this the the cultural just the the demographic size and influence of New York, people don't really appreciate how much greater it was, you know, back in the days when America was America. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The conservative anti-urbanism thing, I think, is is foolish for a lot of reasons, but also it's going to be hard to govern and shape the country when you're writing off the parts where the people and the money are. And um, you think conservatives, you know, I, I wish Republicans actually were the kind of old-fashioned money-grubbing country clubbers that they're often depicted as being, because they would probably pursue more sensible policies if they were, if they were more motivated by their avarice than by their resentments. I think they would, uh, they, would, they would choose better policies. And if you really were more motivated by avarice, you would be saying, man, we really need to do something about Silicon Valley. We really need to do something about, you know, D.C. and the suburbs and the various places um, where we don't have much of a presence and much of a footprint. You know, if you look at, you know, Texas, where the productivity and the you know incomes in Austin are just so much higher than the rest of the state, conservatives have you know very little say to say to the people who live there, and I think that is um, political malpractice, and it's it's unfortunate. Um, but as Herb Stein said, under Stein's law, that which cannot go on forever must eventually stop. So, um, and. Uh, you know, you say the, the future is going to be awesome, but it just may not be here. Um, I say the future might be awesome. It just might not be with human beings. The, you know, the, the, the border collies and the bees might do a better job running this planet um, after the sweet meteor death gets here or the murder hornets finally exact their toll. But we'll have to wait and see. There was a book a couple of years ago called Honey Bee Democracy about how bee colonies make decisions. It's really good. It's worth reading. So maybe the honey really? will do all right. Yeah. I forget the huh. author's name. He's like the country's leading bee expert. Um, ah, Hans Holtensen. No. Yeah, no, no yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, I should, because I'm a terrible host. Uh, I should have explained to listeners. I just thought you needed no introduction. Uh, you are the national correspondent for National Review. You are the author most recently of The Smallest Minority, which is a wonderful book. You are the author of The End is Near and It's Going to Be Awesome, which was a truly wonderful book. And you have a book coming out in October called, do you know, have a title? Big White Ghetto. Dead broke, stone cold, stupid, and high on rage in the wild and woolly precincts of the real America. Nice. Um, Big White Ghetto, I mean, it it, it, kind of sounds like, you know, Big White Gangster, which could be like your rap name or something like that. But, uh... Um, anyway, Kevin, always a pleasure to have you on. Two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> um, great to have you here. I hope to see you in person before you decamp for Switzerland. Um, and uh, uh, come back anytime. Let's talk to you soon, Jenna. All right, so Kevin has left the studio, as it were. Um, and uh, uh, when he was talking about how maniacs, how Americans are maniacs and just weird and all that kind of stuff. I really thought that he was going to break into a uh, rendition of the We're Not Wet Tussies speech by uh, Bill Murray and Stripes. 
because uh, that's where my heart goes whenever I hear that kind of talk about American exceptionalism. Um, always great to have Kevin on board. Um, obviously, I was somewhat exaggerating about his optimism um, and his effervescence, uh, but there is there is something reassuring about the constancy of his dyspepsia and misanthropy. Uh, and so he's always welcome here on The Revenant, as are all of you. Uh, we're going to have a, another Dispatch Live event this Thursday night uh, with the gang from the Dispatch, uh, me, David, Steve, and Sarah. And uh, uh, it's for members of the Dispatch community. So if you're not a member yet, please sign up. And um, uh, other than that, uh, we're grateful to everybody. I hope you've uh, um, been enjoying the podcastery so far um, this summer. And we have some exciting guests coming up, uh, even more exciting than Kevin Williamson, I have to say. Uh, and that was and that's a that's a high bar to cross. Um, so stay tuned. I don't want I don't I don't want to chum the waters, as it were, uh, with Jaws still in mind uh, by getting people too excited. You know, because some of you people listen to this podcast while driving, and if I told you who the guests were, you could swerve off of the road in excitement, and I wouldn't want that to happen. Um, so, uh, thanks again. Thanks for the support. Thanks for being members. Those of you who are, thanks for listening. Please give us reviews on all those podcast places and I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. God, what was I going to say about this? Jesus, I got to stop getting high before I do this podcast.